Amen. Thank you, Dave. So we are in week three. This is the third of four sermons in Luke 16, 19 through 31. We'll have one more, Lord willing, next week and wrap up this mini-series. Just a brief review of, of where we've been before we get into today's, to today's subject and theme. Um, we've divided this sermon up, or this series up into four parts, as I mentioned. In the first two parts, we just dealt with the people and the places that are presented in the parable. In sermon number one, we talked about the people, that is the rich man and Lazarus, and we examined their life conditions and drew some lessons from those life conditions. Those lessons included things like death was their common end, both for the rich man and for Lazarus. We saw how frighteningly easy it was for the rich man to go to hell and that most of his sins, were, at least that are presented in the text, are just sins of omission, things he neglected to do, not things he actually did. We also saw that a person's life in this world is no sure sign of where they stand with God. Lazarus was blessed by God and the rich man was cursed when many Jews of Jesus' day would have thought exactly the opposite, and many in our own day would think that. We were also taught that we need to assess both the pleasures of this life and the pains of this life according to eternity. That, that, that's true for both those who are not yet Christians, but it's also true for us as Christians. We need to assess our pain and pleasure in light of eternity. And then we saw especially how Lazarus was comforted as he was carried away into, uh, to, to, into paradise, which we will dive into more this day, but to th this morning. But we saw how particularly he was cared for as the angels are said to have taken him to where Abraham was. So that was the first sermon, talking about the people. Last week we discussed the places that they went. Lazarus going being carried by angels into Abraham's bosom and the rich man going into Hades. We also talked about why they weren't there, right? Lazarus didn't go to heaven because he was poor, and the rich man didn't go to Hades because he was rich. But rather, they went where they went because in the rich man's case, he had a misplaced trust, and he lived a selfish life out of that misplaced trust. But in Lazarus' case, it was because his affliction, obviously, in some way, led him to dependence upon the Lord. And contrary to what the rich man was doing, Lazarus actually listened to Moses and the prophets, which, as we saw last week, according to Jesus, is all centered on the Messiah to come, namely the Lord Jesus Christ and what he did in his life, death, burial, and resurrection to save us from our sin. So with that background, and I hope helpful brief review, we come to the third um, sermon in this series, having discussed the people and the places, now we want to dive into these places a little bit more specifically. And we're going to talk about the pleasure that Lazarus experienced uh, as he was carried by angels to Abraham's bosom. And then secondly, we're going to look at the pain that the rich man experienced and then see what we learn about the Lord Jesus Christ in conclusion. So first of all, let's talk about the pleasure of Lazarus. We don't get a whole lot, do we, in this parable about Lazarus' pleasure. Uh, being carried by angels is obviously a picture of something wonderful, but we're not told about his experience as much as we're told about the rich man's experience, right? The rich man's experience gets a lot of press, but, the, but Lazarus' uh, experience gets four words. Let's look at those four words, though. They're all too important. It's in verse 25 where Abraham is responding to Lazarus' request that, um, or sorry, 
Abraham responding to the rich man's request for Lazarus to come and give him a drink. But he says, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner of bad things, but now he is comforted. That's what we get, right? Now he is comforted. So what do you do with that? As a, as a pastor, as a, when you're doing Bible study, what, what do you do? You just say, well, that's comfort. No, you, 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 you stop and you say, okay, where, 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 what, what is he experiencing and where else does the Bible talk about this? Right? And as I said last week, what Lazarus and the rich man are both experiencing is what's theologically called the intermediate state. That is the state in which after we die, our souls depart from our bodies and go into either the presence of God or into a place of punishment. And so that awaits a final resurrection at the return of Christ when both the bodies and souls of unbelievers and believers will be reunited together and they will be either inheriting the fullness of redemption as believers, namely the new heavens and the new earth, in the presence of God forever, in an embodied existence, reality, or in an embodied existence in the lake of fire. So this is describing the intermediate state. And we get some help from our theological forefathers, and, and I want to lean into that this morning um, under this first point about the pleasure of Lazarus. I want to lean in to what some of our theological forefathers uh, used to describe and help Christians grasp these realities. And one of those helpful documents is the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Now, if you're not familiar with the Westminster Shorter Catechism, it was born out of the Presbyterian Church. This would be the conservative, Bible-believing branch of Presbyterianism back in those days. And they created a larger catechism and a shorter catechism. A catechism is just a training tool. It's a series of questions and answers that um, would be given for children, but also for adults, to help train them in the basics of the Christian faith. And one of the questions in the shorter catechism speaks directly to this experience of Lazarus, that he was being comforted. So I want to unpack that particular statement um, of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. The question I'm thinking of is this. What benefits do believers receive from Christ at death? What benefits do believers receive from Christ at death? And here's how it answers. The souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness and do immediately pass into glory... And their bodies, being still united to Christ, do rest in their graves till the resurrection. So four things are mentioned there, and I want to talk about those four things. Because as believers, we need this comfort. Because this comfort is something we're, we're looking forward to as we make our way through this wilderness and this pilgrimage of life, as we've sung about and been reminded of this morning, which is filled with all kinds of dangers, toils, and snares but four things that Lazarus experienced based upon what we read here in other parts of Scripture. First, he's with Christ. In death, believers are immediately with Christ. We see that right away. As soon as Lazarus died, he was carried away immediately into the presence of paradise or comfort, as, we're, as it's described here. Now, don't miss this, my friends. This is the greatest blessing of all. It's the greatest blessing of every believer at death. And everything else pales com in comparison to it. 2 Corinthians 5.8, Paul says, We are of good courage as Christians and prefer, rather, 
to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Is that your preference? It's every believer's true preference. If the Lord Jesus came to you right now and said, I'll give you another 30 years or you can come home to me right now, we would all say, take me, Lord. I want to be with you. Samuel Rutherford once said, I am so in love with God's love that if he were not in heaven, I wouldn't even want to go there. That's the heart of a Christian. Second, not only are believers with Christ, but they are made perfect. Believers are immediately perfected in holiness. This, apart from being with the Lord Jesus Christ, is one of the greatest things we can possibly think about. The author of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 22 and 23, speaks of the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And he's emphasizing that those of us who have come to Christ are part of this perfect company of believers Now, if you're like me, brothers and sisters, there is no thought that is more comforting because a thousand times a day, this heart of mine is tempted to disloyalty to my God. It's tempted to love things which I ought not to love, to betray my Lord, to be in a place where where I am struggling to, to, to believe and follow and love him as much as he deserves to be. But to think about that one day we will be in a place where never again never again will we have the slightest tinge of temptation to defect from loving him loyally, cherishing him as our Savior, is one of the sweetest possible contemplations we can have. To be made perfect in holiness. Our minds illumine, our wills perfectly right, our actions matching perfectly God's revealed will. And the thought of this belief and this rest should be overwhelming to us as God's people. I don't know what it's like to live with a heart that's not wholly given over to God. And you don't either. Not for one second in my life have I ever lived with that kind of heart. But then, I will. Then, as God's people, you will. The warfare will be over, the battle will be done, our heart will be wholly and solely His... And instantaneously in that moment of death, Satan will never, ever be able to get his hook anywhere in my heart to use something in my heart to try to pull me away from Jesus because there won't be anything to grab onto. Perfected in holiness. It's a beautiful picture. Third, not only are we with Christ and made perfect, but we are in glory. Believers pass immediately into glory. Again, Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 23, the apostle says that his desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Why is it so much better? Because when we pass out of this life to be with Christ, we inherit the glory that Christ himself is enjoying. We are safe in our Father's arms. We are safe in our elder brother Jesus Christ's keeping, who shed his blood that we might come home. Immediately. That's what we see here with Lazarus. Immediately it happened. The poor man died, verse 22, and was carried. It happened right away. You remember Jesus saying to that thief on the cross, next week you'll be with me in paradise. No, he said, today you will be with me in paradise. It's immediate, brothers and sisters. Fourthly and finally... Not only are we with Christ, perfected in holiness and in glory, but we're united to Christ, resting in the grave 
our bodies are in awaiting the resurrection. I'll never forget um, Ron Miller, our brother Ron Miller, who pastored for a time at GRBC and now is pastoring in Clarksville, Tennessee. Um, when his uh, first wife, Donna, passed away, I still love her gravestone. And uh, you can see it um, in town if you ever want to visit it. But it's very standard for Christians of previous centuries. Um, it says, here lies the body of Donna Miller, united to Christ and awaiting the resurrection. That's exactly out of the Westminster Shorter Catechism right there. And that's going to be true of every believer's gravestone, whether you put it on there or not. Right? You don't have to. Nothing, nothing sacred about that. But it does communicate what is actually happening. Donna Miller was united to Christ, and she is awaiting the resurrection. But she's with the Lord now. And this is why we give each other comfort. 1 Thessalonians 4.13, we don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as those who have no hope. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Isn't that a beautiful way of describing a believer's death? Fallen asleep in Jesus. Our Lutheran friends often put that on the gravestones of their departed saints. Asleep in Jesus. You see that the point of that is that the metaphor takes all the sting out of death, doesn't it? I know for many of us, there's a natural fear of dying, right? We, we, we've never been there before. We've, never, we've seen loved ones walk there, and we, we, we've experienced it with our families and our friends, but we've never personally died. And so while the fear of death for us as believers is taken away, that is the sting of death according to Hebrews 2, nevertheless, the fear of dying can be very natural and is not necessarily antithetical to faith. But God overwhelmingly in his word gives us comfort after comfort after comfort. You're going to be carried away by angels immediately. You're going to be taken immediately into the presence of Christ. As soon as you depart from the body, you're present with the Lord. Today you will be with me in paradise. There is no reason to fear. Jesus will be there in the bed with you if you're in a bed or if you're in a car or if you're walking by the way. And as I found out, a pastor friend, not a, not a, pa a pastor uh, just in, um, in Hendersonville, Tennessee, just this week, getting ready to go with his, uh, on a pastor's uh, uh, event with some friends, walked out to the mailbox, fell over, went to be with the Lord Jesus, 48 years old. 48 years old. Chris Swain. And um, just that immediately, and then, but he's right there. He's with the Lord Jesus immediately. So the point of these metaphors is to take the sting out of death. Death is not a place of darkness and uncertainty. It's a place of rest where Jesus himself is cradling us and caring for us. But that's not all Paul has to say. He says, this we say to you by the word of the Lord that, this is 1 Thessalonians 4 again, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. In other words, we're not in a position that is better than the position of those who have already died in Christ. <laughs> They're in a better position than the living in Christ. Because when the Lord returns, those who are dead in Christ will rise first. And then we will join them being caught up in the, in the air so that we will ever be with the Lord as we accompany him back to the earth. So I want to 
underscore that the Apostle Paul is stressing here that God is going to so care for our bodies that at the last day, those bodies are going to be transformed, united with our spirits, and will even go before us as we are caught up to be with the Lord. It's important to understand that your loved ones who have died in Christ, our precious brothers and sisters who have passed away in this congregation, who have died resting and trusting in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, are more alive now than we are. That they've ev- and, and more alive than they ever experienced before because they are united with the living Christ. And nothing can separate us or them from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. And the souls of the redeemed wait the return, reuniting of their soul with their resurrected body on the last day when Christ returns. Brothers and sisters, are you not comforted by these thoughts? This is what Lazarus was experiencing. Did he know all this at that moment in the fullness? I doubt it. But he knows it now. And he's known it for a long time, as his body has no doubt decayed by this point and is awaiting the resurrection as he is with the Lord. Those are glorious thoughts, beautiful thoughts. But we must come to a second reality, which is the pain of the rich man. We not only consider the pleasure of Lazarus, but now we come to the pain of of the rich man. It's described in four different ways in this particular passage of scripture. Verse 23 says that he was in torment. Verse 24, he responds by saying, I am in anguish. And then verse 25 comes and says, you are in anguish. And then verse 28, again, we were reminded that this is a place of torment. Torment and anguish is what is described of the experience of the rich man. So we might summarize his experience. Lazarus was comfort. The rich man is anguishing torment. Now, just to be clear, Jesus is speaking figuratively when he speaks of a soul asking for water. Souls don't need water. Bodies do. And Abraham's bosom, happiness is not found in laying on Abraham's chest. Okay? It's speaking figuratively and metaphorically. And that the souls in heaven and hell are in the same general location so that they can have conversations. All right, That's not what's being taught by this parable. Those are, those are, those are story elements that are being Im- imported to help us understand. But just because we have figurative language here doesn't mean that the figures don't represent reality. They do represent reality. But we must first let the rest of the Bible guide us in understanding those realities. So just as I gave four truths about Lazarus' experience of paradise based on the shorter catechism question, now I want to give us four truths about the rich man's experience of Hades based upon our text. First, hell is a place of suffering. Hell is a place of suffering. Now what's the reason for his torment? He says in verse 24, I am in anguish in this flame. Fire is one of the most common words used to describe the place of torment. Jesus often spoke of the hell of fire. He spoke of the eternal fire reserved for the devil and his angels in Matthew 25, 41. This torment, this anguish, this fire is referring to an experience of severe and conscious suffering. Revelation 14, 10 paints it most vividly when we read, He also will drink the wine of God's wrath, referring to the unbeliever, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. 
And there will be no relief, friends, no amusements to entertain, no drugs or alcohol to numb, no internet or cell phone to distract, no TV to stifle the conviction, the pain, the anguish, the agony, the torment, the suffering. None of it. It's all gone. Hell is a place of suffering. Secondly, hell is a place of regret. Verse 25, notice what Abraham responds. says, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things. He calls him to remember. And that would have no doubt prompted the rich man to think back on his life and regret deeply the life that he chose to live. The rich man was called to remember the way he had lived his life on earth. How much common grace do unbelievers enjoy in this life? Because of God's kindness and patience, even those who live their lives in in, in deliberate ignoring of God, he allows men, women, boys, and girls to enjoy the good things that he's created. They enjoy good food. Drink, sports, music, art, laughter, friendship, a home, a soft bed, the blessings of family. Matthew 5.45, Jesus says, He makes His sun rise on the just and on the unjust, on the evil and the good. But friends, in hell, all these common grace blessings are separated from the person. If you're not saved, you'll be stripped of all the common grace you've enjoyed in this life. You'll be banished from the love, goodness, patience, and mercy of God that you have experienced by virtue of being in his image, born in his world. You'll be separated from anything that could bring a benefit to you or a pleasure for you. For the unbeliever, this life is all the hell, sorry, for the believer, this life is all the hell they will ever receive. For the unbeliever, this life is all the heaven you'll ever receive. Those are sobering thoughts, but meant to draw our hearts to eternity. J.C. Ryle says, We learn from this parable that unconverted men and women and boys and girls find out the value of a soul after death when it's too late. The change that will come over the minds of unconverted men after death is one of the most fearful points in their future condition. They will see and know and understand a hundred things to which they were obstinately blind while they were alive. They will discover that like Esau, they have bartered away eternal happiness for a mere bowl of stew. There is no infidelity or skepticism or unbelief after death. It's a wise saying of an old divine that hell is nothing more than truth known too late. Several times in the New Testament, Jesus describes hell as a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping speaks of the emotion of deep sorrow, and Jesus used uses an expression that means to wail. This is convulsing, uncontrollable grief. But the phrase gnashing of teeth conveys another emotion, doesn't it? It conveys an emotion of passionate anger. When Stephen preached his sermon in Acts, the Jews gnashed their teeth at him in anger at what he was saying as they came to stone him. As one writer says, in hell, that anger will be more intense than any this world has ever seen. 
The wicked will be angry at the things which gave them pleasure on earth, but now give them pain in hell. Angry at the sins that wreck their lives. Angry at themselves for being who they are. Angry at Satan and his helpers for producing the temptations which led them into sin. And even while compelled to acknowledge his glory and goodness, angry at God for condemning them to this dreadful fate. There is also the consciousness of the glories and the blessings that are missed. Jesus tells us in Luke 13, 28, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves are cast out. What will be the pain of a son or a daughter seeing his mother received into heaven but them thrust out? What will it be to see your dear father or brother or precious sister to have your saved loved ones in heaven but you yourself thrust away and cast out or banished and forgotten forever, cast out into God's cosmic trash dump, eternally separated from anything good? C, third point, hell is a place of separation. Notice verse 26. And besides all this, between us and you... A great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. Jesus tells us that the lost will be cast into outer darkness in Matthew 8, 12. Paul in 2 Thessalonians 1, 9, which we recently considered, speaks of unbelievers being punished with everlasting destruction away from the presence of the Lord. Some people say that the presence of God won't be in hell. However, it's the intimate, welcoming presence of the Lord that will not be there. But since God is everywhere all the time, His presence will most certainly be in hell. Painfully so. We read in Revelation 14 that they will be tormented in the presence of the Lamb and of His angels. The Scriptures speak of this separation in two ways. There's separation in terms of distance, the great chasm fixed, and yet there's also separation in terms of relationship. Those in hell will be separated from God forever in terms of relationship, but not in terms of distance. The great chasm fixed indicates that there is no hope for a change now. There's no hope of relief, and there's no hope of escape. Fourthly and finally, Hell is a place of dread. Notice verse 27. And he said, Then I beg you, Father Abraham, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they come to this place of torment. Now the things I've been describing have been the torments of the soul in the intermediate state prior to the return of Christ. But for the unbeliever, it gets worse because the souls of the lost in torment now also have suffering in the, in the body to look forward to in the resurrection. The fuller reality of hell awaits, and it only gets worse as on that day the body and the soul will be reunited to stand before Christ in final judgment, and then the body and the soul together will be cast into the lake of fire. And this is in part why the rich man cries out like he does. The man who cared nothing for anyone but himself, even the realities and the pains of hell move him to warn others. That teaches us something, that if 
that, that is as selfish as he was, and as we saw last week, as selfish as he continued to be. Father Abraham, send Lazarus, I'm thirsty. As selfish as he continued to be, nevertheless, his heart was moved to warn his brothers from coming to this awful place. Now, why, Pastor Mark, would you share those things with us? Well, for many reasons. One reason is because it's in the text, right? We, we see it right here. We've got to deal with it. It came from the mouth of Jesus. He's our great shepherd. He's our chief shepherd. He's our pastor, capital P. So until we get to the promised land, we need all the words of Jesus, the kind ones and the hard ones, right? As Romans 11, Paul writes, Behold then the kindness and severity of God. God wants us to do both. He wants us to behold his kindness as we did in the first point. He wants us to see the comfort that is extended to us as believers. But he also wants us to see the severity, the severity with which he treats unrepentant sin and unrepentant sinners. But I think the main reason is so that we will get on our souls a sense, not just in our minds, but a deep down in our hearts, the reality, I need Jesus Christ. <laughs> I need Jesus Christ. That's why. So having looked at four comforts for the, for the believer, Lazarus, in heaven, to four torments of the rich man, we now come to the third and final point, the provision of Christ. This, brothers and sisters, is why I'm spending so much time talking in a measure of detail about the horrors of hell because I want you to see and appreciate these four things. That the doctrine of hell and the glories of heaven teach us about reality. So we're going to look at these four things. Number one, the reality of hell shows the worth of the glory of God. The reality of hell shows the worth of the glory of God. An objection is often raised about hell. How can God punish someone for an infinite amount of time for sins committed in a finite life? You've heard that, right? Maybe if you haven't, I'm introducing you to a common objection. One mistake we make in this discussion is we start with the length of man's sinning instead of the height of God's glory. That's the wrong place to start. We don't start thinking about how long we've sinned we start by thinking who we've sinned against. We make sin, what makes sin infinitely blameworthy is not that we have sinned an infinite number of times. No one has. We haven't. Nobody sins an infinite number of times. But what makes sin infinitely blameworthy and deserving of hell is that we've sinned against an infinite person. Here's how Jonathan Edwards put it. The crime of one being despising and casting contempt on another is proportionately more or less heinous as he was under greater or less obligations to obey him. And therefore, if there be any being that we are under infinite obligations to love, honor, and obey, the contrary towards him must be infinitely faulty. Our obligation to love, honor, and obey any being is in proportion to his loveliness, honorableness, 
and authority. But God is a being infinitely lovely because he has infinite excellency and infinite beauty. So sin against God being a violation of infinite obligations must be a crime infinitely heinous and so deserving of infinite punishment. Edward's argument is it's not the length of the time of sinning that calls for an eternity in hell. It's the height of our sin against the holy God. Edward's point is that it's not how long we have sinned that makes our sin worthy of infinite punishment. It's who we have sinned against that makes our sin worthy of infinite punishment. So the first thing the reality of hell teaches us is how infinitely valuable God is. How worthy he is to be loved and trusted if spurning him for lesser things requires infinite punishment. Secondly, the reality of hell shows the heinousness of sin. Most of us, even as Christians, we struggle with this, but certainly our our neighbors do not think of God as a big deal and do not think of sin as a big deal if they believe in God and sin at all. But how bad must sin be, really be, if committing it merits that kind of punishment? Partly because we live in a fallen world and partly because we're surrounded by sinners and partly because we ourselves are so associated with living around sin, we can begin to take our sin lightly. We lose what the Puritans called the sinfulness of sin. But hell cures us of all that fantasy. And jerks us back to reality. Sin is serious. Deadly serious. Eternally serious. It's not a small, light thing. To to commit sin is to commit what R.C. Sproul called cosmic treason. Here's what he says about that reality. Sproul says, Even the slightest sin that a creature commits against his creator does violence to the creature's holiness, his glory, and his righteousness. Every sin, no matter how seemingly insignificant, is an act of rebellion against the sovereign God who reigns and rules over us and as such is an act of treason against the cosmic king. Is this how you and I view our impatience, our selfishness, our greed, our lust, our gossip, our judgmental spirits, our laziness, our unforgiveness, our bitterness, our lying, our slander, our sinful anger, our crude joking, along with untold number of sins of omission, do we think to ourselves, cosmic treason, infinitely worthy of hell. Hell has a way of awaking us to the heinousness of sin. So the reality of hell shows us the worth of God's glory. It shows us the heinousness of sin. Thirdly, the reality of hell shows us the greatness of the sufferings of Jesus Christ. The Son of God, in his incarnation, get this, experienced more of hell's torments than any sinner ever will. Now, how can you say that? He wasn't suffering for his own sin. Absolutely right, he wasn't suffering for his own sin. But when he suffered on the cross for our sin, he was being treated as a sinner would be treated. Punished under God's wrath. And he wasn't just being treated as one sinner would be treated. He was being treated as a multitude that no man can number of sinners was being treated. 
It would be unspeakably magnificent that in three hours on a cross, Jesus could deliver one person from hell's torments. And yet Christ did not save one person. He saved millions upon millions of people whose debt to God mounts up infinity. So the truth is, no one knows more about the sufferings of hell than Jesus Christ. For in his humanity, he suffered more of hell than any one person, no matter how wicked, will ever experience. Never think that God doesn't have skin in the game when we talk about hell. He does. God is not some aloof cosmic deity playing duck, duck, damn with his creation. As it's some sadistic sport for him. It's not. A God of infinite glory and holiness sent His eternal begotten Son of God into the world to take upon Himself the hellish punishment of all those who would ever trust in Him. A thousand Adolf Hitlers will never know the depths of hell the way the Lord Jesus Christ experienced it. This tells us the massive value of the cross. It explains why we gather week after week after week to sing about a dying God. A dying son who would lay his life down. And why we never get sick of talking about the cross, of singing about the cross, of reflecting on the cross. You Christians really are obsessed with blood, aren't you? You don't know the half of it. <laughs> we love Jesus Christ. We trust in Jesus Christ. He's our only hope. Because hell reveals to us how great his sufferings were. And finally... The reality of hell shows how much Jesus Christ loves you. You and you and you and you and you and you. In Luke 16, 24, the rich man in hell is desperately thirsty. And on the cross, Jesus said, I thirst. When he cried out that reality, just as Lazarus cried, or the rich man cried that out. The rich man was crying that out knowing that God had forsaken him. And Jesus was crying it out because he knew the same thing in a deeper way than the rich man was ever experiencing. If a mild acquaintance denounces you and rejects you, that hurts. If a good friend does the same, that hurts worse. However, if your spouse walks out on you saying, I never want to see you again, that's far more devastating still. But the longer and deeper and more intimate the relationship, the more torturous is any separation. What was the father and the son's relationship like? The son's relationship from the with the father never had a beginning. And it was infinitely greater than the most intimate and passionate human relationship. When Jesus was cut off from God, he went into the deepest pit and the most powerful furnace beyond all imagining. He experienced the full wrath of the Father and he did it because he loves you. Can you see then how the reality of hell magnifies the love of God? That if we try to sanitize hell, make it less offensive... We, we rip the heart out of God's love. God wants us to know the horrible realities of hell because it magnifies His great love for us. 
So often people say, I don't believe in God. I, don't, I believe in a loving God. I don't believe in a God who sends people to hell. But what kind of love is that? What, what, lo- what, what did it cost your God to love you? Nothing. That's not love. That's sentimentality. I want real love. It costs God in that framework nothing to save people. But this is not love. That's warm, gushy feelings. Real love costs. Real love dies. Real love suffers. How unsatisfying that vision of God is in the end, of a God of no wrath, no judgment, well, no love either. In an effort to make God more loving, so often we make him less loving. Let's not do that. In conclusion, I leave with these words of John Piper. Therefore, what happened at Calvary is beyond all imagination in its greatness, all imagination in its beauty, all imagination in its love. Hell is all about echoing faintly the glory of Calvary. This is the meaning of hell, to help you feel in some emotional measure the magnificence of what Christ did for you. What a Savior is echoed in the flames of hell, an echo of the infinite love of God for our souls. Worship team, music team, I want to invite you to come up. Um, brothers and sisters, um, I don't always do this, um, and we, we won't always do this at the conclusion of our sermons, but being that we have a few minutes, um, I just want us all personally to deal with God right now. Um, sometimes when we, you know, end a sermon, we, uh, we go right into music, right into announcements, see you later, have good lunch. I don't think that's what God wants us to do right now. I think the, having wrestled with the beauties of heaven, the agonies of hell, and the wonders of the cross, we need to respond to God. We need to respond to God corporately with singing, but we also need to respond to him individually in our seats for a few moments of quiet prayer. So um, what we're going to do is I'm sure the the team will play something briefly, and uh, I'll, I'll, I'll lead us in a closing prayer in just a few moments, but I want you all to pray personally. For wherever you are with the Lord Jesus, if the, however this sermon has hit you, I know most of us in this room, we're walking with the Lord, but maybe this, this hits you again. I'm not taking my sin seriously. I'm, I'm messing around with life. I'm just, this is, and you need to talk to the Lord about that. Maybe some of you have never come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Kids, adults, say, I need to talk to Jesus and ask him, be my savior. Save me from hell. Rescue me from eternal damnation. I want to be with you. I don't want to just escape hell. I love you because of how much you love me. If you love me that much, I can trust you. You will take care of me for the rest of my life. That's what the Lord would have for you. Or maybe you just are a burden for your family, members, kids, friends, neighbors, coworkers, and you just want to spend time praying for them. Do that. But let's take two minutes, and however the Lord leads you, just quietly bow your head, close your eyes, and, and, we'll, and, we'll, and we'll pray for a few moments. However the Lord would lead you to respond, and then I'll, I'll come back up in a couple of minutes and lead us in a closing prayer, and we'll stand and sing. Thank you.
Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for giving us, giving it to us that we might know you, that we might know you in your glory, that we might know who we were as being created in your image and who we are as being created in your image, that we might understand sin, that we might understand the consequences of sin, but all to the ultimate end, that we would be brought to the end of ourselves, knowing that all the fitness you require is to feel our need for you. And this you give us, that everything has been paid for, that there has been a perfect report card secured in heaven for all those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. A perfect righteousness has been obtained and is a free gift to all those who look away from themselves and bank everything on what Jesus did for them. So that when we're asked, why are you a Christian? We don't respond, I'm trying to do better. We say, because Jesus Christ is my only hope. Lord, move us as a body to greater trust in the Lord for some this morning, to a first-time trust and heart belief in Christ and love for him. For those of us who have been Christian for decades, for a renewal and a warming to the glory of Christ based upon his great love demonstrated in his great suffering for our great good, our eternal good. And move us with compassion for others to, to love our, our, our places of employment and our families and our, and our friends, to love them enough to share the truth with them, to love them enough to speak of sin and hell, to love them enough to speak of the love of Christ. And we pray that in these days, you would bring many to yourself in our spheres of influence, in our, in our families, in our, in our places of work. Lord, those who we prayed decades for, would you move in their hearts and save for your glory. In Jesus' name, we ask all of these things. Amen.